Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. We're working really hard over here to get women the resources and information and the foundational components. So when they step into your organization, they're ready. But you, system, you need to correct your biases, your policies, and other things that is a roadblock because we cannot continue to send people down this road and they're hitting roadblocks. Welcome back to episode 22 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Huge thanks to our sponsors and friends over at Pledge who are making this episode possible. Today, I'm interviewing Nicole Parker. Nicole is a social innovator that knows how to create strategies that lead to transformation. With her sisters, she founded the project Sisters in Business, which has the mission to create a space for women of color to connect, collaborate, and build community to sustain, grow, and maximize their vision. In this episode, Nicole talks about her journey through community development as a student of social enterprise and what brings her to this moment as a powerful social innovator and disruptor. This episode is full of some really big issues and questions. We talk about what's behind the quote-unquote trust issues that funders have that create some heavy obstacles in terms of access to resources, and what the real impact is when white-led organizations come into the community and start doing work that has already been happening. We talk about the way we both grapple with the fundamental question of whether you stay within the system to disrupt it or work outside of it, and honestly, how to do both. Nicole is honestly one of the smartest and most thoughtful people I have ever met, and I am so grateful for the way she talks about things through the lens of her lived experience and academic training. I can't wait for you to meet her, so let's go get started. Welcome, everyone. I am thrilled to be here today with the amazing Nicole Parker. We had our first conversation a few weeks ago now, and at the end of it, I was like, oh my God, that should have been recorded. (laughs) That was the podcast. It was so good, but I have no doubt that this is going to be such a rich and valuable conversation. I learned so much every time I talk to you and read about your work. So let's just start with you introducing yourself to folks and sharing a little bit about your story. Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It is always a pleasure to be on these platforms. And yes, I agree. When we first had that conversation, it was so rich. It was so cool. I was like, that was it. But really excited to be back here again to have the conversation. So I'm Nicole Parker. I always have a hard time trying to say, what all do I do? Wear a lot of many different hats. I think one of the biggest things that I say is I'm a social innovator and disruptor. Currently, I'm doing work with my sisters in an organization called Sisters in Business, which is an organization that supports uh, Black and brown women who are in the entrepreneur space and or thinking about starting their own business 
Like I said, I do this in partnership with my biological sisters, Elisa, Tiffany, and Talisha. We all have our own businesses. And so we came together to really say, how do we support and create spaces for Black and Brown women in our community? Because we saw that it wasn't there. We started this organization in December. Can't believe it's December already. December will make five years that we have been in partnership doing Sisters in Business, which has grown from brunches to summits to pitch competitions and so much more. So that's the hat of that I'm wearing today and talking about. But I also have a consulting business where we do work around organizational development, strategic planning with organizations who are trying to do community development and social impact work in particular for marginalized communities. So yeah, that's a, a little bit about who I am. What <laughs> I'm here, I'm there. Wow. Well, and I know your like educational background too has so many components that relate to all of your work. But let me ask you, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What is the thing you're like, I fundamentally want to change blank? You know, what gets me out of bed in the morning is really wanting to remove barriers. And in particular for people who are innovators and creators, the work that I do, I'm working with especially a lot of women of color and seeing the work that they are passionate about, but recognizing that there are systemic barriers in the way. And through my education and my personal lived experience, I have been um, within systems and seeing how those barriers are created and outside of systems, seeing how people are innovative, creative, but they, they're not tapped into the right resources. So for me, I always say the work that we do is right at the bridge and at an intersection. Um, my lived experiences, my professional experiences, my educational experiences. And I often say that I'm speaking different languages, right? And if I have the opportunity to work at the intersection and being able to shift systems in order for people to get where they need to go, that's what gets me up in the morning. And so. For those who might be coming to this conversation with fresh eyes around even systematic, what are the barriers that you are trying to break down and also supporting women around how to handle? I guess I'll start answering this question by getting into how I got into this work. So my family, we we do a lot of community work. And back in 2013, my family started a nonprofit um, called Charlie's Place, which stands for Pursuing Leadership and Community Engagement. And my father had always been active in community. So that's something that we naturally have been a part of is doing community development, youth development work. And when we started our nonprofit, one of the biggest things I said was there was a huge need in our community. A young person had recently gotten killed. One of my uncles had passed away suddenly from a heart attack. So we and our family were going through a lot, both saying, what can we do with our influence and our passion to create change for youth in the community? And that's really where our organization was birthed out of. And during that time when we started to build our organization, one of the first things I said was, how do we make sure that this organization is sustainable long term? I want to make sure Charlie's Place is here 100 years from now. Um, And so that meant, how do we find resources and funding? So to answer that, one of the biggest things I saw was funding right away, access to funding to do this type of community grassroots work. My father had worked in nonprofit for years doing youth development work, and here he was doing all this work for himself and in our family organization, and we were struggling to access funding and resources, but we were like, he said, we're not going to be grant dependent from the beginning. So with that in mind, my thought was, 
how do we make sure we're sustainable? And it all came down to how do we access funds? How do we access networks to be able to move around? And I first started to see those barriers in our nonprofit. So I also was in a place of saying, working in an organization, higher education, doing diversity work. And while being there, I also was seeing the systemic issues that were happening with the students I'm working with and saying, how do we really create change to make sure people are on the path to have access and live their fullest potential? And so I started looking into grad schools and came across a TED Talk on social entrepreneurship. Had never thought about entrepreneurship a day in my life because I was all about community work and education. And so in this TED Talk, which I don't know the name of it to this day, the person was talking about how do we create social good through utilizing business and teaching people how to create their own revenue streams and invest that money to create impact. And I found a school that had that social entrepreneurship master's program. And that's how I got into it at George Mason University. And we were told we needed to do a thesis project. And I was really focused on how do we use social innovation and social entrepreneurship to um, support innovation in the Black communities? Because I saw many people like my family who had created nonprofits and are trying to create solutions, but we didn't have access to the networks and the money and the, the human capital to create the change that we're trying to do. We kept running into barriers. And so while I was there, I'm in these classrooms, I'm learning about people being social change agents and all of the buzzwords, and everybody was white. And so for me, it, it seemed to have come from a very white paternalistic framework to say, you're coming into communities to create change and not necessarily that community members didn't have the change that they already needed. And so for me, that was a fundamental difference. Like, I'm like, that's not my experience. My experience is the people I'm working with in community, like my family, the solutions are within community, but community might not necessarily have access to money and funding. And here I am in the academic space where they're doing pitch competitions and they're talking about how all this money is available and just go get these grants and ask your father and have these conversations with these people and get into these networks. And I'm like, hey, Black woman in the room, that's not my experience. <laughs> you know, that's not my experience. And so I was exposed to this new world of business and business, quote unquote, for social good. And everybody was doing this from a very white paternalistic framework to saying, we have the answers for community. Let's go on community and show them what they need. And here I am saying that's not my experience. Community knows what they need. Community needs access. So to me, I started to see all these barriers, right? I already know them from a lived experience saying that a lot of your decision makers, even in the nonprofit space, because we were in the nonprofit space, a lot of your decision makers are white people who are making decisions on how our resources distributed in communities who are mostly people of color. And the way in which these processes were set up, I'm like, this is problematic. When majority of the people who are making decisions on where resources and how resources are distributed do not reflect the people who are in need of the resources and also have the solutions. I'm seeing this in my academic experience. I'm seeing this in my own family's nonprofit. I'm seeing this just in general. And for me, that's where I began to say, there has to be some type of shift happening here. And I remember at the time, this is when the Trayvon Martin case had happened and Mike Brown and all these things were happening. And I kept asking myself, like, what role does social innovation entrepreneurship play in 
the era of Black Lives Matter. And at the time, I also needed to form my committee to do my thesis. So much is going on. I'm away from home. My family's back home doing the nonprofit work. And so I'm really in this space of trying to figure out what role do I play personally, too. Like, I'm seeing these issues. I'm seeing the barriers on a systemic level, on a personal level. I'm going through my own transition personally as well. Ended up connecting with my committee member. Her name was Dr. Wendy Manuel Scott. And she told me, and she's one of my mentors to this day, she said, Nicole, you need to look at this work through the eyes of Black women. And I was like, well, I don't look at it through the eyes of everybody. She was like, I encourage you to do that. So what I ended up doing was doing a few independent studies with her because I was frustrated because in the curriculum, there was nothing that really talked about how people of color are creating change within their communities through business, entrepreneurship, through social impact and nonprofit that wasn't reflected in the curriculum. And that's really what I wanted because that's my experience. So I pretty much was crafting my curriculum. And so she said, you need to study social movement. So I began to study black social movements throughout time and looking at the types of innovations that came out of black social movements through the eyes of black women. And so I studied people like Ella Baker, um, as well as Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Mary McLeod Bethune, and really began to dig into the, the lives of these women and seeing how there's always this trend that when there's deep trauma in Black communities, which continues to happen in, today, but when you see these the rising up of movements, you also see the rising up of organizations and or different organizations, businesses. Like even right now, you see a lot of Black businesses starting to pop up, but you also see this post-Reconstruction. You see this during the Civil Rights Movement. You began to see what's happening around the movements is this birth of self-empowerment to say, we have to control our resources. We have to control what we're doing to distribute the money and economic justice, right? So you began to see this uproar in a sense, and it's even happening right now, like in 2020, when everything began to happen and you see folks starting to say, support Black business. But throughout history, you also see this every 50 years or so, this rise up. But when I was studying, what you also saw was the barriers to growth and expansion also was rooted in access to capital. Majority of these organizations, businesses are very innovative and creative, but systemic barriers stop them from being able to push forward. And so for me in studying that, it was like, how do we create access to the capital and not only the capital? And, you know, for me, I, I cringe with capitalism. We can go. I can talk. Oh, that's where we went last time. But for me, it was economic justice is also about being able to access resources, whether they're financial resources, health, education, or a variety of things to be able to move community forward, to get community out of survival and thriving. It's about being able to access those things. And so for me, in studying that, I'm like, look at the pattern of what you see is happening around these Black social movements. Like I said, civil rights, you have Black Lives Matter, you have post-reconstruction, you have post-segregation, all these different things. But you also see these movements of Black people being innovative and creative and trying to find their own way to create change in community, but systems block it. Like you see the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
where you have the bombings and destroyings of Black communities. But this is historic. There's a thing on social media going around about the lakes, man-made lakes, that were used to destroy Black communities. So these are historical patterns that have happened. And for me, as someone who's studying this work and now trying to apply it in community, it's like, how do we make sure that we're sustainable? How do we make sure that we create access to these systems so we can disrupt the system? as well as shift resources in a new direction and teaching people how to go and get these resources for themselves. And as I've done the work internally in systems and externally, one of the things I always wrestle with is, do you stay within the system and disrupt the system completely or do you work outside of it? And I've done both. <laughs> so, Yeah, I know that's something we talked a lot about last time too, around the constant inner battle sometimes we face around working within a system that we fundamentally disagree with, but recognizing the short-term benefit to the people and communities that we care about by doing so, and then also wanting to just blow it all up. Yeah. (laughs) So we saw a lot in the last year, as there has been this growth in Black businesses, we've noticed bigger brands promoting search functions, like some of the meal delivery searches, right? To make sure that they're buying food from local Black-owned businesses. What do you think about that type of action taken by big companies? I look at it in two ways, depending on the intent behind. It's all about intent to me, intent and impact. I think there are some organizations who are really genuine to say, I'm going to use my privilege and power to provide access to my platform that I have to be able to provide exposure, right? Don't downplay the power of exposure for a lot of businesses. And so for that, I'm like, I think it's good if their intent is right to be able to get folks elevated to where they have more exposure to more people be able to shop with their business or patronize their business. I think also on the other, on the flip side, what I tell some of my clients that I work with is, is this performative, right? Are you really trying to intentionally put dollars behind the work that you're doing? Or are you trying to get along with the trend? Because post-George Floyd especially, you saw a lot of people saying, support Black business, let's make sure we're doing this work, but let's go back now in 2021 and see where they're at. Where are your initiatives? Are you still providing access and plat- to your platform? And not only that, are, are you providing access to your networks and your resources? Like even here at home, there's a big store. Meyer is a huge grocery store here. And I would say they're a great example of an organization who utilized their platforms. They have over 100 different stores and they did a vendor's fair to teach Black businesses and other um, businesses how to get on their shelves. And I know at least three people that I know personally who are actually getting ready to launch in Meyer stores now. So I think that's huge, right? To their benefit to say they use their platform, their power and their privilege to really elevate and not only just elevate and provide exposure, but to say, I'm going to make sure we put dollars back into your pocket. And I think something that you're demonstrating here, because I've wondered that too, and especially as you were talking just now about, you know, some of these platforms that have made it easy to search for, you know, Black-owned businesses, but I'm like, you have 
access to capital and the people who have capital? And are you introducing these startup businesses to those people and helping them get into those spaces? Because that's the bigger like gate, right? And so the recognition that, yes, we can all see you doing that thing on your platform, but are you doing things behind the scenes that are actually truly changing access, I think is just such an important thing for us to be thinking about and looking for, you know, there was all that data that came out about how many companies made pledges following George Floyd's death that haven't fulfilled them in terms of their investment in black and brown communities or organizations. And I think the other thing that I trying to process live when you talk about the Myers example and like the difference between that and the performative activism, it seems to me that one of the fundamental differences is the entity's like belief in the value of what they're bringing to the table. That Myers is like, we know that there are products out there that have been kept out of our realm of awareness because of these gates that are unjust. And so we want to remove them because we recognize that that has kept us from these really valuable products. Not that we're doing just some favor, but that we're actually saying like, there's been an injustice here and there is value here. And we need to actually rewrite the system to connect those pieces in a more just and equitable way. And so that goes back to like the beliefs that they hold. When you were talking so much about spaces being occupied by white people that are intended to serve black and partner with or serve probably from their perspective, black and brown communities, but not really trusting or believing that the solutions that like rolls back to what are the underlying beliefs around why you're showing up there? Because if you believe as a white person that you know better, then you're never going to be able to show up in partnership and actually solve the challenges that, you know, the world, I say the world is facing because while they might be materializing in certain communities, they're all of our problems. That structural racism is all of our problem to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. It's literally everything you were just saying, because it's, so easy to say, I'm really here to do the work, but I haven't done my own personal work. That unconscious bias or that implicit bias, and you sit in a position of power to create so much change, but you haven't done your own work. And I think that's what you see a lot of, especially when it comes to the philanthropic space and the fundraising space and people who who, have, who sit in places of power who can make some changes without really intentionally doing your own personal work, it be, it serves as a barrier. And I think some of the most well-intentioned progressive people that I've ever talked to or been in partnership with are some of the folks who, who I say, you sit in very powerful positions and are a gatekeeper who hasn't been beneficial because they haven't done their own work. And it's easy to only, I always tell people it's a both and. It's the structural and the individual work. So you do the individual heart work You can't really sit in positions in the structural work and think that you are being a champion because you're not. You really aren't. You're hurting people. And to kind of go back, circle this back to the question you asked about the corporations on the corporation side, I've seen this. But what I've also seen, because Sisters in Business is a nonprofit, with all of the great awareness around this that happened in 2020, I also saw like even in the philanthropic foundation space, 
what you see is organizations like Sisters in Business and other organizations who have been doing this type of work for a long time, in a sense, kind of getting sideswiped because more of your other organizations who are doing this work who may have a bigger platform are able to now say, this is my priority. And because this is now has shifted my priority, I have the means, the capacity, and the people to show performatively that this is my priority. They now are seen as the main champions, main voices of this work. And so, because I've talked to other people who also have organizations like Sisters in Business and we're like, well, welcome to the party. (laughs) (laughs) You know, thank you for finally hearing us. We've been talking about this type of work. So there's to me like a catch-22 that's happening. I'm grateful for the awareness that is beginning to happen within the work. But it's also the questioning of, now, who are you, right? We're like, well, we've been here, but when you are a smaller organization, when you know, you're know you running this with two or three people and you have a bigger organization who has a staff behind this, who now says diversity, equity, inclusion, especially around Black and Brown entrepreneurship is my focus, you may be able to put a grant application in way faster than I can. You may have some other resources that I don't have. So it's been interesting to see that shift happening too and or having funders who have invited us to do, to apply for grants and ask us what are the barriers and we're we're explaining to them, but their processes are still very much so difficult. I remember we had a funder who told us, because we created a new program because of COVID, as a response to COVID and the funding that was being released, we saw that a lot of Black and Brown businesses weren't able to access their dollars that were coming out because either they didn't have the paperwork or just different things. And so we said, there's a gap. We can fill this gap by creating a program, which was called the Black Entrepreneurship Training Academy that we did in partnership with an organization called Black Wall Street Kalamazoo. And when we began to put it together, we said, we have to create a program that helps people get the fundamental pieces in place while we also work on the systemic issues. So we can pull down some of these resources as well. And I remember when we were going through funders, talking to funders, one of the main things that a lot of funders would say to us, well, who's already funding you? If you don't have a funder yet, we don't want to be the first in. And so to me, it comes back down to a trust issue. (laughs) Do you trust that we can do the work even though we've been doing the work? But this is also systemic, right? I, I see this happening in the world of fundraising all the time. When you're talking to foundations, it's something that they do. Who else is your funder? Who else is funding you? And very rarely do you see people who say, we want to be innovative and invest in this, right? We talk about it. We talk about saying that this is something we want to do. We put our statements out, right? Everybody was putting their statements out in 2020, but you have an organization who's saying, we're coming to you with a very innovative solution to a problem that we have right now, and you're still using very old tactics to provide funding innocence. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. 
I think you're talking about so many important things here. And I think, you know, it's really interesting. I'm reading this book right now called The Psychology of Money. And it's not at all, this is another example of me not reading the description of something before I buy it. It is not what I thought I was buying, but it's actually fascinating in a very different way. It's kind of geared towards like, how do you make strong sort of financial investments and accumulate and keep wealth? And it's a lot about sort of the stock market, which is not you know, a book I would typically buy. But what's really fascinating about it is the chapter I was just reading is actually really around like how much sales in the market and how much investment and even like the best hedge funds or the best mutual funds are really buoyed and profitable based on like seven to 10% of the investments in the portfolio and really upwards of like 60%. I'm sure I'm botching some of these numbers, but our failures are, you know, investments that totally don't pan out. And the thing I was thinking about yesterday when I was reading this is, gosh, like, what if we had this level of awareness, which I think he's trying to bring that awareness in general to the investment space. So I'm not saying they have the awareness and we don't, but it was making me think about what if we brought that level of sort of risk and investment and awareness into the nonprofit space. Or I think what is happening is that, you know, you're saying this piece around we're not being trusted to be so that they're going to invest in us first because they want to know that their investment is going to be successful. But the reality is, is one, they don't know that because another funder invested and Funders are doing that for their friends and family without having that proof point of other people. They are being the first for other people. And so what is the impact of that, you know, and to just say that, yeah, it is the same level of risk to invest in a probably actually more risk to invest in a white run organization that's trying to solve an issue in community versus investing in a new solution. That's like the risk around innovation. And that I think is part of this like unconscious bias piece. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but the gates that get kept around, like I heard it too, starting a nonprofit or working a nonprofit, like your friends and family round. We hear that from startup companies too. Okay. So what I have folks come to me all the time, like, what if I don't have a friends and family round? That means I can't start a nonprofit. I hear that from leaders all the time. And then I hear from white leaders all the time. I'm just going to call this out. I'm starting a nonprofit to solve this thing without having done any research about what's actually happening in community. It's something that we've definitely this year in particular struggled with because we're like, we've been doing the work. We're proofing the work. We've done, we've been doing this for five years, whether it's workshops, whether it's any of these things. And it's not just us, but it's Black organizations across the board that we saw this with, especially over this last year. Everybody's putting the statements out, but it's a trust issue rooted in your unconscious bias and really systemic racism. We're going to continue to give to the organizations, no questions asked that we've given to over the years who have yet to solve it, but we'll question you and your intent and can you really do this? And to me, it's a, a dance that I think a lot of Black and Brown organizations go through in the philanthropic space. One of the things I was just having a conversation with another friend of mine around these sort of things, and I say, it's really interesting to me how 
A lot of foundations and different folks will police pennies while we let millions fly out the door, no questions asked about risk. And often that policing of pennies is rooted in work that Black and brown people are doing. I'll give you pennies, not even really enough for you to do the work that you're trying to do, but I'll also micromanage what this looks like and how you need to do this and how you need to show up in this way. When in reality, we're like, get out of the way so we can do the work. We've been doing it. If you're going to invest, invest. If not, move on. (laughs) Um, We're going to find a different way. Yeah, I mean, it it begs the whole framework around restricted funding, like for grantors to restrict funding around communities that they are not from and that they do not understand. And I think what you're talking about is really important because I think a lot of burden is put on organizational leaders to be trustworthy without recognizing the systemic barriers that are gatekeeping the funding that have nothing to do with how trustworthy the leader is, the organization is, but are really biased. So when you're supporting Black and Brown women to get access or to help them navigate even opportunities like that, what are some of the biggest recommendations you make? You know, one of the biggest recommendations that we make is first doing that self-work. So earlier I talked about the thesis work that I did um, doing my research. I ended up doing my thesis. I entitled it, Ain't I an Innovator? The Missing Narratives of Black Women in the Field of Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And in that, one of the things I did was create a framework that I called the Six Eyes of Black Innovation. And my committee told me that I needed to do that because I was researching Black women in entrepreneurship because I saw that Black women were the fastest growing demographic in entrepreneurship with the least funded. And so I began to do a lot of research studies around Black women and access to capital and funding, whether you're from the nonprofit space or the for-profit space. And I remember coming across an article by a brilliant woman. Her name is Catherine Finney called The Diane Project. And it looked at Black women in venture capital. And she studied, I believe, over the course of two years, how tech companies were being funded. And I believe it was like 0.02% received venture capital funding. And they were coming from like the same funder at that. And some of the comments that they that were made often were like, I don't support, it was one of the comments I remember st- sticking out when I read it. It said, I don't support the woman thing or the Black thing. And the woman was a tech company. So she's like, this isn't specifically to cater directly to Black women. This is a tech innovation that can cater to almost anyone. So you're seeing this happening, whether it's in the tech space, whether it's in, you know, other service spaces, it's happening all over where your fastest demographic of entrepreneurs doing innovative, creative work also is the demographics who's locked out of the most funding. And in reading her study and some of the other research that I was doing, one of the things that I saw around the six Black women that I studied, like I told you, Ida B. Wells, Ella Baker, Mary McLeod Bethune, and studying their lives, I saw this pattern with them. And that's where the six eyes of innovation came from. And it was really centered in their lived intersectional experience and them being able to break past some of the internalized oppression and racism that allowed them to push past and do their innovation. 
So the first I is lived intersectional experience and looking at how somebody's race, class, and gender impacts the way in which they navigate the world and how the world sees them. And then one of the things I talk about is identification and recognition. And in that step, what's really happening is people are beginning to identify and recognize how the world sees them and how they see themselves. And there is a process in which folks who are able to push past and do that internalized work and pushing past internalized racism, internalized oppression, whatever mm. they, that may look like for them, they are also the individuals who are able to push past and begin to step into their innovation and step into their power. And I think as women, and especially as women of color, there's a lot that you're always having to press past and understanding your inner strength and who you are allows you to step into a system that might not necessarily always be welcoming to you, but you then have enough understanding of who you are to know how to advocate for yourself. So what we do a lot of is that self-work and teaching people, how do you understand who you are, your power, your authenticity, and how you show up in spaces, how you're going to show up in your business. So when you get ready to go to a potential funder, a potential investor, or whatever the case may be, or advocating for your business, you're coming from a space of power and not necessarily a place of oppression. And I think it's so key to understand that. And so while we're doing that individual work, especially some of the things we try and do with Sisters in Business, I'm also, on the other hand, in our consulting business, trying to do the systemic work. We've had a lot of conversations with organizations to say, hey, we're working really hard over here to get women the resources and information and the foundational components. So when they step into your organization, they're ready. But you, system, you need to correct your biases, your policies, and other things that is a roadblock because we cannot continue to send people down this road and they're hitting roadblocks. That is a lot of what we have been doing is like, how do we prepare yourself, your mind, like mentally prepare your mind and then acknowledge that here are some truths to what this experience is going to look like, but people have done it. Here are other women who have done what you're trying to do. We're going to connect you to this woman. We're going to try to get people who can mentor you. For us, being in Calumas, Michigan, it's a small city. So what we really have started to try and do intentionally is how do we connect people outside of Kalamazoo? How do we get you connected to other resources outside of here? If the system here is not going to necessarily help you, let me get you connected to somebody who can. And so that's a lot of what we've done. It's a lot of what I've had to do personally because it's easy to give up. It's easy to internalize that and saying, well, maybe it's something wrong with me. And that's where I found myself working with a lot of different women to say, hey, how do we work on ourselves mentally and get our mindset right? And then also foundationally, what other components in your business has to get right? So when you go to that bank, you know, you already have everything you need or you go talk to that investor, you're okay. You know, you got that pitch deck together. So trying to equip people with all the necessary resources and school tools and skills that they need while also trying to shake up systems. And then the other thing that we've been doing is creating our own lane. So like for Sisters in Business, we started doing pitch competitions after our first year because when we did surveys, people that was the number one thing that kept coming up was access to funding, access to funding and funding without strings attached. So we were like, let's do a pitch competition with our long-term goal of creating a Sisters in Business fund. Because we're like, women need access to no strings attached money where you can go take a risk. 
you need to be able to go and take a risk with funding, test your product, test your service, do whatever, and not feel guilty. And we know that most folks who are taking, because even one of the studies I saw, it said that most Black women who start their businesses are pulling from their 401ks and or draining their savings account, which most people do, but it's at a much higher risk. You know, we're starting businesses at a much, much, much higher risk, but how do I supplement that risk for her? How do I make sure she has all of the tools and resources and access to the funding that she needs to be able to thrive and flourish? So those are some of the things that we do. You're so, every time I talk to you, I'm always like, I need to do more research. <laughs> I feel like I'm always just like trying to keep up with everything you're saying. I'm blown away and I'm really inspired by so much of what you said. But I love the way you talk about working on both sides of the problem at the same time. And I know it's like an emotional and inner sort of battle that you are always dealing with. I think what's so beautiful about what you're doing, though, is, you know, I went through executive coach certification a few years ago, many years ago now. And and the whole time I kept asking about, I was like, well, what about systematic and structural racism. What about, I felt like everything I was being taught was like, it's all in your mind. And I was like, that just doesn't work. And I was like, I get that your framework around coaching is like, what are the inner barriers that we can get past? But I feel like we also need to acknowledge that there are external barriers. And at the time I've heard that the organization has shifted, but at the time they really couldn't hear it. And I feel like that's a lot of the toxic positivity and coaching. Like I will read these books and I'm like, oh man, like it's not all in your head. Yes, there are some fundamental, we do need to understand that the barriers that we have internalized to continue to perpetuate these internal stories as well and have, and understand where they come from. You know, like in fundraising, I say to people all the time, of course you feel awkward asking for money. Women forever have been told that it's inappropriate for them to talk about money. So of course you feel uncomfortable talking about money. It's a huge taboo. That's not your fault, but we need to acknowledge that history. We need to, and then to figure out where we can take control over the narratives, at least to sort of move past some of those internal barriers, not that, and it sounds like what you're really doing is also helping folks have that level of awareness and understanding that might increase resilience around what they might experience with some of those external challenges, but also just this deep sense of self and alignment and authenticity, which I want to ask you about because I've heard particularly from black and brown women that I've worked with, that even the term authenticity can feel really triggering. And it's a term I've taken out of my work really over the last year. And I talk more now about alignment, about how not all money is created equal. And you don't just want to take money that is not in alignment with who you want to be as a leader or a fundraiser, because then you're going to be held to being that person. And that's not who you want to be. But I'm curious, just sort of your thoughts about that piece of it. Yeah, um, it's something that I definitely struggle with, too, because when you're talking about being authentic, I think for Black women, it's another layer of, well, what side of authenticity are you looking for? Is it the safe authentic? Do you want me to be the safe Black woman that is politically correct and shows up in this 
specific way, I think that's what a lot of people want to see when they say, I want you to be, be authentic, but not that authentic, right? And so it takes me back to one of the things, one of the researchers that I read a lot of in her work, Melissa Harris Perry, she's a political commentator and also professor. And she wrote this book, Sister Citizen, a few years ago, well, maybe 2012, I think. And I had the chance to read it. And I read it when I was doing my research. And in there, she talks about a field dependency study. And she uses this to describe the experience of Black women. And it's a field dependency study where um, they use it in the military, where people go into a room that's crooked. And so, and they ask them to, there's a chair and they tell them to try and align themselves. Everything in the room is crooked from the the doors, the windows, the pictures, everything in there is crooked. And what tends to happen is everyone who did that, majority of the folks would align themselves with the images or the doors and they thought they were straight, but in reality, they were crooked. And the reason why they were crooked is because they were aligning themselves with the things in the room which were the crooked images and all of that. And so she describes this as a Black woman's experience in America, iterating that the images and the doors and the windows and different things are the stereotypes and the way in which people want you to show up. And so it's always this constant battle of bending, twisting, and trying to stand up straight, but trying to align yourself with crooked images. And a lot of Black women know that these images are crooked, but you're constantly struggling every day to try and stand up straight in a crooked room. And I feel like that's what's happening even when that conversation of authenticity is, I'm trying to stand up straight and align myself with what I think society means by what they want an authentic Black woman to look like and being yourself versus how I really feel like I am. And it's this crooked room and trying to battle with yourself internally every single day. And how do I stand up straight? And is it about dismantling the entire room, right? In order to stand up straight? Or is it learning how to navigate in a crooked room? And something you talked about was alignment. And I think it's about that internal alignment. How do I feel internally that I'm straight? Because we go off of that analogy, everybody felt in alignment when they were aligned crooked images and that happens with so many of us we're like I'm trying to just be what society tells me that I need to be so I'll align with the crooked images whereas other people I think in that internal disruption and understanding of self and taking back your own power you're aligning from within and when you align from within you're standing up straight and you're like I am the one who has power over myself my thoughts my future, where I'm going. And then you begin to move and operate in a completely different way. And I feel like that's the work that has to begin to happen with people. And I feel like not enough people have been given the permission to do that because we've been told through stereotypes, this is how you show up. Like in the book, she talks about different stereotypes from the Mammy, the Jezebel, the welfare queen. And then one of the ones she talks about is the superwoman was created to combat the other stereotypes. So you see a lot of Black women who, I want to be superwoman, I have to do everything myself, and I'm combating, I'm not these things. But it's to your own detriment, to your own health, you know, health issues, different things like that, because you're trying so hard to fight against the images of negativity and stereotypes, but you don't realize being superwoman isn't in alignment either. 
And so how do we begin to give people permission to say, you don't have to be all things to everyone. (laughs) You need to be in alignment with yourself so you can show up and be fully healthy to run your business or run your nonprofit or or make the impact in the world that you want to be or be the best mother, right? Even if it's not even just business, be the best mother, be the best person that you can fully be here on this earth. And that's, I got to get in alignment with myself and I don't have to be all these things that everybody else in the world wants me to be. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for sharing all of that and saying all of that. I can't imagine how exhausting it all is even hearing you talk about that. And I think the point that you're making around the layers of work that are necessary to create safe spaces is just really critical. I think I told you on our first call, I have this dream of doing a pitch competition where all the judges go through anti-racist training and implicit bias training before they participate as judges in the pitch competition. Because I do think sometimes it's intentionally performative. And I think sometimes people think that they're doing the right thing by addressing one element of the problem. And so they're like, we're going to really diversify the organizations participating in this pitch competition, but they haven't done the work with the judges. And then it just, again, puts all the burden on the people pitching to figure out what kind of room they're in and how to stand in it instead of asking the judges to examine the room too. Because even for the judges to know we're sitting in a crooked room would be really helpful, right? For that whole process to happen in a more like equitable and just way. So you have said so many things here that I know we could talk about forever. And I really want to thank you so much for your time. I also want to know how can people support Sisters in Business, folks who are listening to this, who are funders or individual donors, where can they go? How can they give? How can they support? your work. And if you want to share, I know you shared about your family's organization, but tell us all the ways, or if they want to hire you, please (laughs) drop the information about your business. Give it, give us everything. (laughs) All right. I'll give you all everything. So I would say, first of all, thank you. This has been amazing to have this conversation. We can go on for hours and hours. I'm pretty sure. Um, But ways that you can contact me, first of all, sisters in business is you can go to our website, And our contact information is there, social media, um, email, all of that info. And that is going to be www.sistersinbusinessmi.com. And you can find, like I said, all of our information there. If you'd like to donate to our fund, which goes to help support our pitch competitions, all of that information is there. Also for my consulting business, it is A&P, A as in Elisa, N as in Nicole, P as in Parker, A&PCreates.com. And like I said, all that information is there on ways you can work with me or if you want to learn more about the work that we've done. And then for our non, my family's nonprofit, which is Charlie's Place, it is going to be K-Zoo, K-Z-O-O, K-Zoo-Charlie'sPlace.com. I have to make sure I wasn't giving the email address. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, make, I'll make sure we have all the links below. Um, and I really want to encourage people, if you are feeling activated by this conversation, inspired, frustrated by it, I want you to go and donate to that pitch competition right now. The movement of money starts with all of us, and it's easy to be frustrated about the gates 
that foundations hold or that big investment funds hold, but you, the listener, also have power in this situation and an opportunity to further money movement into the right places to support these businesses and these business leaders. So I really want to encourage you to go and do that. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole, for this time. Thank you. I know I always say this, but there is so much in this episode. The first time Nicole and I ever spoke, we were kicking ourselves that we didn't just record the conversation for the podcast. Some of my top takeaways from this conversation are, one, how important it is to learn from social movements and recognize patterns in history that are repeating themselves, and to make sure that we do better. I also really appreciate the way that Nicole talks about inner alignment and the role that plays in navigating oppressive systems and uprooting harmful practices. I also just want to reiterate the power that you, the listener, have here as well. It's easy to be frustrated about the gates that big investment funds hold or foundations, but have you reflected on your own money movement? Is it moving in alignment with your values, with creating the world that you want to see? As this end of your giving season approaches, I hope you will consider some of the opportunities for investment that Nicole mentioned. We will make sure all of those details are in the show notes, as well as tons of other takeaways from this episode. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to get access to everything. You'll also find more information there about Nicole's incredible work and how to connect with her. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, please stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. you. I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.